Have you ever received an anonymous message? Supposedly, these are some notes that neighbors left for their neighbors. One couple got back to their house, had a post-it note on the door that said, Did you guys move? Your Wi-Fi isn't working anymore. Hope you are okay. That's a real concern, right? Posted on a neighborhood sign was this message. Please do not throw your unfinished cigarettes on the ground. Our cat sneaks out at night and smokes them, and we are trying to get her to quit. This is one of my favorite reportedly non-signed complaints that were offered to a travel agency. Although the brochure said there was a fully equipped kitchen, there was no egg slicer in the drawers. The nerve. No one should have to take their own egg slicer on vacation. This is terrible. Sometimes anonymous messages tug at our heart, right? There was a teacher back in April in Colorado, and she wanted to find out a little more about her students, and so she created a little program, and the program was called I Wish My Teacher Knew. These were some of the anonymous messages that her students gave to her. I wish my teacher knew that I don't have pencils at home to do my homework. I wish my teacher knew that I don't have a friend to play with me. I wish my teacher knew sometimes my reading log isn't signed because my mom is not around a lot. Real stories, real messages. There was a student in Alberta, Canada, walked out to his car one day and he found a note on his car. The note on the car read as follows. I noticed you left your lights on. The battery will probably not have enough charge to start your vehicle. I left a blue extension cord on the fence and a battery charger beside the fence in the cardboard box. And then the note went on to explain in detail instructions for how to use the charger to charge the battery in case the person didn't know how to do it. Pretty cool. So anonymous messages, anonymous gifts, sometimes they can be mean, Sometimes they can be sarcastic, sometimes they can be kind, sometimes they can be helpful. But the very nature of an anonymous message, an anonymous note, an anonymous letter is that you don't know who it is from. You have no idea who is giving it to you. But what if you did know? What if you found out who gave you the message? What if you found out who gave you the note? What if you found out, not one of the mean and sarcastic ones either, but one of the kind, helpful things? What if you found out that the anonymous gift was given by a certain person or the anonymous letter was given by a certain person? You knew who was kind to you. You knew who did something for you. Well, today we are going to look at the greatest anonymous gift that has ever been given. The greatest anonymous message that has ever been handed off to anyone ever. It is much better than Wi-Fi. It is better than an egg slicer on vacation. It is better than having the best friend in the world to play with. It is even better than bringing life to your dead car battery. Because this gift, this anonymous gift, actually can bring life to a dead soul. And technically, this gift is no longer anonymous. We actually know who's behind it. Look with me at Titus 3, beginning with verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves. In the previous sentence, Paul is writing to Titus. 
And he's telling Titus, hey, I want you to tell the folks at church, remind them that they need to wisely submit to and wisely honor those who are rulers and authorities. Now, does that mean we're just supposed to roll over and we're supposed to do anything and everything that rulers and authorities tell us to do, even when they tell us to dishonor and disobey God? No, by no means. What it does mean is this, that we trust God enough to always remind ourselves that he's the ruler above all rulers. To always remind ourselves that when it comes to the final authority, every single thing in the universe comes under God. He is the final authority of everything. No one is higher. And because that's true about God, because that's a fact about God, that means we can wisely submit to and honor and obey and respect those in positions of leadership, rulers, authorities, at home, at work, at school, at church, in our local and national governments, and just about any other place on earth, because our submission is ultimately to God. As we continue to struggle with leadership in general in our country, I would encourage you to go back and study Titus 3, 1, and 2. There's some great things on studylight.org, some good commentaries and other things that you can study. But also I would really encourage you maybe even to go back to hollandavenue.com and listen to last week's message. Quick thought from last week to kind of launch us into this week. John Piper said this, The way you respect a scoundrel like Judas... And the way you respect a saint like John will be different. But there is a way, and we are to look for it and find it. See, here's what happens. One of the reasons that we're sometimes comfortable with mocking those in authority or or bucking authority, going against those who are in charge, one of the reasons sometimes we're comfortable doing that is because deep in our hearts, we kind of think we've always been more saint than scoundrel. We we really think that we're much more John than Judas. See, Paul has a, a real helpful way of writing reality checks. And so he gives us a reality check right here in this text. In verse three, he says what? For we also once were foolish ourselves. Paul says you were a foolish, sinful scoundrel. That's what it means to be apart from Christ. A foolish, sinful scoundrel. Now the word foolish here, it means literally not having a mind. Now that doesn't mean you're ignorant. doesn't mean that you're dumb. doesn't mean that you don't have any common sense. What it means is that the most important truth in the universe is something that you don't believe in. The most important truth of the universe is something that your mind cannot even remotely comprehend, or at the very least, that it completely rejects. Jordan Manji was skeptical at a very early age. When she was four years old, her mom found her at a birthday party arguing with another kid. And this is what she was telling the other kid, four years old. How do you know what the Bible says is true (laughs) at four? 2008, the fall of 2008, she showed up at Harvard University, an extremely intelligent, atheistic freshman. Six months later, she committed her life to Jesus Christ. What in the world happened to Jordan? 
Well, the first thing that happened to Jordan was she met a Christian that didn't say, hey, turn and burn, turn or burn, you better get your life right. That's not what they said to her. What they said to her was this, you know what, you really need to examine what you say you believe in. You need to really look into your own system of beliefs. And she did. She started studying the origins of the universe. And after three months of studying the origins of the universe, she did not become a Christian, but she became convinced that there was one true creator God. She also started reading the Bible, and the Bible really had an impact on her. This is what she said in an article from Christianity Today. The cross no longer seemed a grotesque symbol of divine sadism, but a remarkable act of love. And Christianity began to look less strangely mythical and more cosmically beautiful. The cross no longer looked merely like a symbol of love, but like the answer to an incurable need. An incurable need. What that means is this, is that we have a need that cannot be cured by our parents or our grandparents or our husbands or our wives or our children or our grandchildren or our job or our country or our church or our pastor or our vacation or our lottery ticket. We have something that cannot be cured by anything of this world. See, when it comes to the, the status of your soul, a foolish person believes in their bootstraps. A foolish person believes in their bank accounts. A, a foolish person believes in their work ethic. Or they believe in their family tree. Or they believe even in their religion. Paul says people that think like that don't have a mind. They're, they're thinking completely incorrectly. They're thinking about the lie that says, hey, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. And even if we're not okay, there's still something we can do about it. But there is nothing we can do about our greatest need. The rescuing of our soul is not something that we can cure. Only the cross of Jesus Christ can cure that need. Jordan went on to say this about her walk with this new thing called Christianity. She said, this walk has proved to be quite a journey. I've struggled with depression. I would yell, scream, cry at this God whom I had begun to love but didn't always like. But never once did I have to sacrifice my intellect for my faith. And he blessed me most keenly through my doubt. She goes on to say, God revealed himself through scripture, prayer, friendships, and the Christian tradition whenever I pursued him faithfully. I have committed to follow the way of Christ wherever it may lead. And then she says this, when confronted with the overwhelming body of evidence I encountered, when facing down the living God, it was the only rational course of action. The motto for Harvard University is veritas, which in Latin means truth. Then Jordan wrote this, I came to Harvard seeking veritas. Instead, he found me. Oh, that is so good. He found me. What happened to Jordan? She was no longer foolish. She was suddenly given a mind, not a mind to study the systems of government, 
but a mind to embrace the supernatural truth of the existence of God. A mind and a heart that eventually embraced the supernatural salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. God found her. God changed her unbelief to belief. Now, you may say this morning, well, I don't know. I mean, when I was four, I wasn't arguing with kids at birthday parties about the truth of the Bible, you know? I mean, for the most part, I've been a pretty decent person all my life. I mean, for as long back as I can remember, I mean, I've always believed in God. I, I wasn't foolish. Take those thoughts and filter them through how Paul goes on to describe this foolishness, how Paul goes on to describe this unbelief. The first way he describes it in verse 3, he says what? That unbelief is marked with disobedience. My wife and I, we have four kids. When each of our kids was around 18 months old, we sat them down and explained all the ins and outs of how to throw a temper tantrum. You see, they didn't know how to do that, of course, so we had to explain everything to them about how to pitch a fit. Hopefully you're picking up on my sarcasm here. You see, it doesn't matter how sweet a kid you were. Every single one of us know how to disobey. And we know how to do it naturally. And every single one of us know how to demand our will and to demand our way. It doesn't matter if you're 4 or 84. We all know how to do that. Jesus described it this way one day when he was teaching in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. See, disobeying God is a form of disbelief. It's a form of unbelief in God. You see, we may be able to come on a Sunday morning and, and sing these songs about our God and, and how he's rescued us and he, he's died for us to rescue us from our sin. And, and we may feel like we believe in God in this room. But then when we leave during the week, we may not really feel like he's the master of the universe because we, we ignore him. Or at the very least, we kind of casually pay attention to him when it's convenient for us. You see, that's, that's unbelief. It's, it's saying that I'm going to go do life as if God doesn't exist. It's, it's a foolish way of living. Unbelief, disbelief leads to disobedience. And this kind of disobedience, this kind of disbelief and unbelief, it's really, really dangerous. Why? Look what Paul says next. He said, because it makes us deceived. The word here literally means to wander or to stray. Imagine a planet that falls out of orbit. What would that mean? Last year, Marissa Fessenden of Smithsonian Magazine wrote an article with a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek title, but probably a lot of reality to it. And this was the title. If the Earth's orbit stopped, we would have about a month to contemplate our doom. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, just 30 days, and you better figure it all out. You know? The reality is, though, planetary falling out does not have the impact of eternally falling out. You see, falling out of the orbit of God's truth has an everlasting, unimaginable doom that cannot be explained with human words. The psalmist put it this way, Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
See, God's truth is the path. God's truth is the way. God's truth is, is truth. And so falling out of the orbit of God's truth is not just you know, being lost in space. Falling out of the orbit of God's truth is not just being in darkness. It's being in the kind of darkness that convinces us there's no consequences for our actions or our apathy. There's no consequences for what we do or what we refuse to do. We are deceived. But see, that's the opposite of how we should function as Christians. See, we should be using our spiritual intelligence. We should be using the truth we have about the cross. We should be constantly reminding our minds and our hearts about what has been done for us, that we had an incurable need and it's been cured. And that should feed us to think about what we say and what we do and how we think and how we act in every area of life. What it should not do is feed us to say, hey, I'm saved, I can kind of do whatever I want to do, and keep flashing the bumper sticker that says, hey, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Mm -mm. That, that's not the idea behind this. The exact opposite is given. Because see, the cross and thinking about the cross, what it does is it moves us to start thinking about our consequences because we realize our consequences are not just about us. See, we realize we're not just living for ourselves or our family or our company or our school or our church or our country. We are now ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We are now people who are supposed to shine the, the light of Jesus into the world. And so our consequences take on a whole new meaning then. So let me just kind of hurt our feelings and ask a pretty hard question. I want you to look back over this past week, publicly and privately, things that you've said and done, things that you've thought, things that you refused to do or things that you did. And how have we done it being ambassadors of Jesus Christ? How did we do just this past week at being ambassadors of Jesus? You see, our status as Christians cannot change because it's defined by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But... If we were to look at our lives more often than not, there's a lot of days we need to have our diplomatic credentials at least temporarily pulled because we're not doing a great job of, of shining our light. Some days it's just hard, right? I mean, some days it's just hard. There's lots of sin around us. There's, there's lots of sin inside of us. There's, there's just things going on. Some days we're lazy and selfish. Some days it's just really hard, but most days... Most days, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, most days we need to be fighting hard to say, God, give me the strength, give me the grace to be a more cross-centered person. God, give me the grace to quit deceiving myself about my actions or my apathy. God, help me see your truth because I need it. Because I need it. But what if you're not a Christian? And that's a good prayer for Christians. What if you're not a Christian? What if you have no connection with Jesus Christ whatsoever? What if you're not paying attention to who he is? Well, then I would say this. I would plead with you to do all that you can to pray that, that the Spirit of God would sweep across your heart and your mind and that you would begin to, to see and know that there are eternal consequences to sin. And to know that there is a need that is incurable. A need that can only be cured by Jesus Christ. And that you might hear and, 
and heed the words of Jesus when he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Paul says that unbelief leads to foolish disobedience and foolish deception. Paul also says that we could be controlled robots. <laughs> That's what we woke up this morning wanting to be, right? I want to be a controlled robot. Well, how in the world does unbelief lead us to be controlled robots? Well, he tells us in verse 3, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Not all pleasure is wrong. God created pleasure and desire and passion to be good things. So when do they go wrong? When do pleasure and desire and passion begin to mess things up? When do we become slaves to those things? When do we become controlled robots? Well, it's when we leave the orbit of God's truth. When we get out of that orbit, that's when everything messes up. 1 John 2, verse 16 says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I heard somebody say this one time. They said, if you take out the middle phrases and just think about it, it gives the verse a whole new meaning. The middle phrase is this way. For all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. Thanks, Dale. I'll make this really hard. How do I know the difference? How do I know when something in the world is of the world or, or whether it's from God? I mean, come on, and this would be easier than this. How do I know if I'm in the orbit of God or in the orbit of the world? Well, I'm a gigantically simple-minded person. I just can't think straight about most things in life. So I'm going to make it as simple as I possibly can for us. These things are the orbit of God. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If it's not in those orbits, it's of the world. Okay? If it's in those orbits, pretty good chance that it's of God. So we keep orbiting these things. We let our mind orbit around love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control because those are things that God is in. And we also remind ourselves of the way that lust talks to us. Lust about anything in the universe. Remember, this is how lust talks to us. Oswald Chambers put it this way. Love can wait and worship endlessly. Lust says, I must have it at once. See, we usually connect that word lust with sexual immorality, but it applies to anything that we begin to worship more than God. I, I kind of have it now. That's when your red flag should go up. This might be lust and not love. Foolish disobedience, foolish deception, foolish lust and pleasure. And then Paul says next in verse 3, spending our life in malice and envy. Malice and envy. Malice is when you have an attitude of sinful, evil intentions towards someone or something else. Malice is something you do not want to orbit. <laughs> because if you're orbiting around malice, it will eventually lead to envy. Now, we sometimes make the connection between envy and jealousy. They're a little bit different here. In 2006, I was driving a 1996 Ford Explorer, okay? And because of the high mileage and because of the older model year and because of the county I was living in at the time, my property taxes that year were something like $28.14. 
Man, great man. I loved walking out of that place with that. It was fun. Now imagine that on the day that I go to the property tax office to pay that, I'm walking out and I see you ride by in a 2006 brand new Ford Explorer. I might look and go, man, I really like that. Man, I wish I had that car. But you know what I wouldn't say? I wouldn't say, man, I wish we could swap property tax bills. Mm Mm-mm. I like my $28.14. I don't want to pay hundreds of dollars on a new car. I don't want your car payment either. But see, envy's different. See, envy's different than just kind of simple jealousy. Envy says, I don't want you to have that car. In fact, I want your car, and I want your car now. That, that's what envy does. And that's what malice leads to. All of this is progressing. Paul's saying, when you don't believe in God, your unbelief in God, it keeps going the wrong way. Foolish disobedience, foolish deception, foolish lust and pleasure, foolish malice and envy. And that malice and envy takes it even one step further. Next, Paul says, hateful and hating one another. The word for hating here means a a strong dislike, even a hostile strong dislike of someone or something. And so this hatred takes envy to a whole nother level. You see, I hate you for having an Explorer, a new one. And then I hate everybody who has a new Explorer. And then I hate everybody who has an SUV. And I hate everybody who has a new lawnmower. And I hate everybody who has a new cell phone. And on and on and on it goes. Before long, I've just become a very bitter person. And then I grow old and I sit in the breakfast joint and I tell everybody how I did everything right and how everybody in the world is doing everything wrong. See, that's how it happens. And it all happens and all begins with unbelief. It all happens with me singing on Sunday morning, this is who God is, and being completely different on Monday afternoon about who God is. It's a foolish way of thinking. It's a foolish way of living. Foolish disobedience, deception, lust, pleasure, malice, envy, hatred. Now, you may be thinking, "Ah, I don't see that stuff in my life. Look, it may not be all the time all over the place. It may not be dramatically, publicly all the time either, but these are the only products of unbelief. At least they're a good handful of them. This is what unbelief produces. It produces disobedience and deception and lust and pleasure, evil, sinful pleasure, malice, envy, and hatred. But here's the thing. There's a cure for unbelief. There is a rescue for foolishness. Somebody has done something about this impossible situation that we find ourselves in. An anonymous gift has been given, but it's not really anonymous. Look at verse 4 and on to the first part of verse 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. You see, we do not save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. In fact, apart from the kindness of God, we wouldn't even know we needed to be saved. John Benton tells the story of a British fighter jet that crashed in 1987 in New South Wales, Australia. 
Both of the RAF airmen on board died in the crash. It seems as if as the jet was crashing, it was heading toward a town called Tinnerfield. And instead of immediately ejecting, these pilots delayed ejecting to stay in the plane long enough to make sure they could steer it away from this town. So kindness and love and sacrifice appeared to the people of Tinnerfield, and they didn't even know they were in danger. They had no idea their lives were at risk. The editor of the local newspaper said this, There's a feeling in our town that we owe our lives to those two. It would have been no trouble for them to eject. This is what John Benton says. Jesus came and saved us single-handedly without any help from us. He dealt once and for all with our sin and its consequences and set our lives on a totally new basis. By his atoning death in our place, all our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for. We are right with God. We are fully forgiven. Are you this morning right with God? Will you lay your head down on your pillow tonight knowing that you've been fully forgiven? William Cooper wrote the precious, powerful hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He also wrote about 60 other great, powerful hymns of the faith. During most of his life, he struggled with sadness and loneliness. Deep, deep struggles with sadness and loneliness. In his memoirs, he happened to write about his love for his cousin, Theodora. It seems that throughout his sad life, Theodora was sending him presents, but she sent them anonymously. He didn't know who they were from and Dally until very late in his life. And so when one of these anonymous gifts would come, he would open up the gift, he would look at it, and with joy, he would simply say, Dear Anonymous, has come again. God bless him. God bless him. We know this in theory, but I'll say it out loud for us to hear again. Every single part of your existence has nothing to do with you. Everything you own, everything you have accomplished, everything you have is not your own because of you. Nothing. Just let that soak for a second. Marinate on that for a second. Whatever you're able to do, it's because there was a day as we stood just with Caroline earlier where you stood on a stage or you stood in a hospital room and someone held your life which you did not produce and said, here's a life. So all that you have is not a reflection of you ever. It is always a reflection of the kindness and the love of God. Your breath, your birth, your possessions, your abilities, all of them are this appearing of the kindness and the love of God in your life. And the greatest kindness, the greatest love that has appeared in your life from God is the love of the gift of his son to die for your sin. There's absolutely no 
greater gift. Love has come. Don't be a fool. Be a follower. And follow Christ today. Let's pray.